I feel so bad, man. That was such a wonderful song that we just sang, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be an awkward transition, but we're sticking to it. We are sticking to it with hopes of song bombing you that there is no satisfaction. Band, thank you so much for playing. That was just wonderful musical worship. And dance team, um, keep up the good effort. So I want to talk about philosophy for a moment. Consequentialism, it's an ethical theory which holds that consequences of one's conduct are the only proper judge of what is right and wrong. Under this view, a morally right act is that which produces a good outcome. And a saying that captures this well is, the end justifies the means. Maybe you've heard that before. Now, from consequentialism is a, a branch called or utilitarianism. Utilitarianism. And this is also an ethical theory which believes that the best action is that which maximizes utility. Or in other words, utility being seen as overall well-being. Now, from utilitarianism, there's a branch called hedonism. Hedonism. And though hedonism reaches back before Jesus' time even, 400 B.C. or so, it is considered a branch of utilitarianism. Now, in hedonism, the argument is that pleasure and happiness are the primary and most important intrinsic good, and that it's a proper aim, then, of the human life. A hedonist, therefore, seeks to maximize net pleasure while minimizing pain. Coming from this is the view, then, that everyone has equal rights to pursue the most amount of pleasure that they can in their life. Ultimately, then, pleasure is the highest good. Now, in assessing these various philosophical movements or ideologies. Some Christians have spoken up through the ages. I wanted to read a few quotes from some of them, at least from the church's perspective. In the 1600s, a guy named Blaise Pascal said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attending with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Now, although we can't necessarily prove this statement, it seems as though there's an aspect of truth there. It's probably overall true. And after asserting this, that this is the motive of every man, Pascal went on to argue that this pursuit is meaningless. He said this, He said, there once was in man a true happiness of which now remains in him only a mark of what uh, was once there, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent to help. He does not obtain in things that are present. In other words, he's seeking to find happiness in things that are right around him, but he's going somewhere else and searching for them. He continues, but these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. In other words, our desires are too deep. The well is too deep to be filled with temporary things that are around us. We exist for pursuing pleasure, and yet we cannot obtain it. He says that we seek happiness from things we don't have, which again, uh, we seek them from things we don't have, and yet we do have them, is essentially his argument. And so following up Pascal, I wanted to bring in one more guy, and that is C.S. Lewis, the author of 40 books or more, the author of Chronicles of Narnia, and C.S. Lewis uh, said this. 
He said, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the un unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What a statement, right? What a profound insight from these two men. Consequentialism, utilitarianism, hedonism, none of them worked as a way of finding meaning in society. None of them worked as an individual aim even. Pascal says it can't. Why? Because the hole is too deep to fill. There's too much to fill. And Lewis says the problem is not that we desire too much pleasure, but that we have settled for lesser pleasures. It's not as though God is some cosmic killjoy, in other words, who wants us to have no pleasure. He is, after all, the one who uh, inspired the writing of Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so Lewis argues that mankind sells his pleasure and happiness short when you seek to find it in the things of this world. He says we are far too easily pleased. It's in that same vein then that we return to the book of Ecclesiastes. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon is pursuing what again? Oh yes, pleasure. He's pursuing happiness. He's pursuing contentment, satisfaction, the thing that we all naturally long for. And time after time, he's concluding in this experiment that it is vanity. It's vanity. It's vanity. He's looking for things around him to satisfy this deep well of his pleasure, and he can't find it. And so I want to read this passage again for you. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, start in verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces, provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, let me ask you some questions here. And I'm going to ask myself as we're doing this as well. How many things do you have? How about just in your closet? How many things are in your closet? Or in your dresser? Or on your dresser? Or in your bedroom? Or scattered throughout the house? Or in a garage? Or perhaps in a storage unit? How many things do your parents have? And maybe your grandparents. Did you know that the average American owns 300,000 items? One out of 10 Americans rents an off-site storage unit. 
<laughs> this was sad. The average 10-year-old has 238 toys but plays with just 12 of them daily. 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but they consume 40% of global toys that are made. And the average home has more televisions than people. Now, how do, does this make you feel a, a little bit sick when you consider how little most of the world has? I've been to Brazil and Latvia and Nicaragua, and let me tell you, these places have less than us. And you know what we find, though? We're not happier than them. We're not happier than any uh, country that has less stuff in their life than we Americans do. Friends, the hedonistic experiment with materialism is being run, and we are being swept right up into it. You know what? Stuff doesn't make you happy. Solomon concludes yet again that this too was vanity. Now, as we continue to learn from this wise man, he's going to have to learn this the hard way, though. He's going to pursue this to its end. And we saw a couple weeks ago he turned to the God of fun and entertainment. Last week he turned to the God of alcohol or substances. And now he's going to turn to the God or the idol of stuff, of possessions, things that he can acquire to put in his life. Now, being that Solomon was rich beyond comprehension and wise beyond comprehension, there was nothing that he could desire to acquire that he could not actually get. In other words, anything he saw and wanted, boom, he had it. And so once again, we made the case last week, this is an exhaustive experiment. Now looking back at the text, verses 4 through 6 speak of uh, big picture things. Big picture things that he builds more specifically and that he makes. And I want to hold off for next week to talk about 4 through 6. We're going to talk about work and competition. But this week we're going to look at stuff. And I think beginning in verse 7, we see four things really that he pursues and he acquires in his life to bring him satisfaction. And the first of these four things is slaves. Look at verse 4. He says, I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. And so Solomon is seeking satisfaction by having slaves or servants. Just a quick uh, comment here before our minds go in, a, in the wrong direction. This is not the same as slavery was in America within the past two or 300 years. This is a different sort of thing that's going on here. This, in this day, someone would be given living provisions. They'd be given a job to do. There, there would be a purchase price for them, but there would be basically an employment arrangement. There would be a set amount of time, a set number of years in which they would serve, and it was basically a contractual agreement. Now, without this, they would basically be jobless. And so, really, this was a, a step up. It was a, a blessing to the servant as well, especially living in Solomon's house, getting to serve the king, possibly eat his food, have warm shelter. This is not that bad of a setting. And the text adds that he had homeborn slaves as well. And the only difference here is that now he didn't have to go out and acquire these slaves. But if they were born in the home, they were automatically indentured servants, which means that they were brought under contract, same stipulations. They were given food, shelter, possibly a wage with a set contract of years in which they would serve. So that's, that's basically the background then of a servant in this day. And where I want to go with this and thinking about it is that this is really not that different from employment today. This is not all that different from employment. Again, we live in weird times, okay? This is a, a, a weird time in, for the history of the world, and we live in a weird country. Well, why do I say that? Because until recently, possibly even our generation, you worked because you had to. 
You, you did a job to put food on the table, to build a shelter, to be able to provide for your family. And you know what? You didn't always get to choose that job. You didn't get to go pick and choose in this job market with online postings and you get to do what you feel like you want to do. No, you worked because you had to. Even in the world today, most other countries, this is the scenario. They don't get to go to a job fair or to a career fair or choose their major in college. A lot of countries are still this way. So in light of this then, Solomon is essentially the employer of these employees. And returning now to the context, I want to remember why he is searching somehow for satisfaction in this. Well, you ask, how could he receive satisfaction by having slaves in his home or by having even employees if we're going to go there? Well, I think this is what's going on. I think in the midst of searching for satisfaction, he's now turning to possessions, and I think that Solomon found a sense of control, perhaps even worth, by having several people under him. In other words, he's building his empire. What might this look like today? Well, maybe it's someone who says, man, I want to own my own company, and I want to have my own company vehicles, and I want to have guys work for me. And then I want to grow the company. And eventually I want to get to be an empire. And I want to have 100 people. No, not 100. No, not 500. 1,000 people work for me. Hmm. I think we're we're getting now down to hitting on the same heart here. The idea here is that Solomon is searching for satisfaction by having servants who serve him, who work for him, who do what he wants for him. He's kind of like a tyrant CEO at this point. They help him accomplish his kingdom purposes that he's building on earth. And so I think rightly so, drawing implications of this, this speaks to those in the business world. And friends, let me just say this. Having a large company with employees does not make you happy. It's not going to do it. Maybe you're out of college. Maybe you're starting to climb in the business world. Being in a position of leadership with people under your influence does not satisfy, no matter what the field is. It's just another idle, another empty pursuit. And so first Solomon pursues that of servants or slaves. But then he goes to livestock. Look at verse 7 again. He says, also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. So now he's going to livestock, and he, and he says that he had herds and some flocks, and I think if we were to translate herds and flocks to today, the equivalent would be stocks and bonds. Herds and flocks and stocks and bonds, those are nice parallel, and they kind of rhyme, right? Uh, it's equivalent to a 401k, okay? He's building up his empire, his wealth. And so in this day, if you had a lot of animals, remember Job? Job had a lot of animals. God took them all away, and then at the end gave them back. Anyways, it was a sign of wealth and uh, high status. And in addition, it meant that he had an endless supply of food, steaks all the time, right? Who wouldn't like that? Uh, Turn back to 1 Kings. Back to your left a few books, past Psalms. Big book there. 1 Kings chapter 4. And you might want to hold a finger just here and in Ecclesiastes because we'll go back and forth a few times. But 1 Kings 4 records (laughs) a little bit of detail here. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22 Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. And here we go, verse 23, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer and gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. (laughs) Did, Did Solomon have some livestock to dispose of? Look at these numbers, 10 
oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, and 100 sheep besides that. And friends, how often was this? Oh yeah, every day. This is what Solomon's household required every day. So did he have more than just a few sheep, a few cattle, a few oxen? Yes. Do not imagine a little corral here, okay? I want you to imagine hillside after hillside after hillside full of cattle and oxen. Why is this significant? Why is this significant? Well, because, again, remember, this is recorded within Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 8. What is Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 8? It's Solomon's pursuit of pleasure. So somehow, having all of these hills and hills and hills full of livestock, Solomon thought would bring him pleasure. He thought it would bring him satisfaction. And just to kind of continue to apply this, I think this speaks directly to the agricultural world today, right? Sure, it can apply to possessions as a whole, but how about the ag people? I come from a family of farmers and ranchers, and I know there, it's easy for this sort of thing to slip in as your identity, your worth being in, how good your herd is, how big your herd is, how healthy it looks, right? There's, there's an application here for us. This won't satisfy you. It won't give you meaning. Eventually, that nice-looking cow is going to die, okay? Eventually, you're going to die, and someone else has to take after your herd. And by the way, I don't want to leave out farmers either. Verses 4 to 6 hit on farmers, right? There's a lot of crops being planted, uh, uh, vines, which is a form of farming. So I think this is all-encompassing agriculture in general. He turns to livestock. Thirdly, he turns just to the general category of money. He turns to money. Look at verse 8. Also, I collected for myself, back in Ecclesiastes 2, I collected for myself silver and gold. Silver and gold. Now, what do you think? Is this a, a few piggy banks here and there? And he's in his bedroom and he's got a little stockpile that he puts a blanket over and he's got some piles of silver and gold. Is that the amount that we're talking about here? Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 9 now. I want to show you the massivity of... <laughs> The wealth that Solomon collected. Oh my goodness, this is going to blow your socks off. First Kings chapter 9, in verse 4 of this chapter, God gives Solomon a promise and a warning at the same time. And he says, Solomon, if you keep my ways, I will bless you and I will maintain your throne forever. But if you depart from my ways, I will judge your genealogy. I will judge the generation after you. And lo and behold, Solomon did not keep God's ways. He didn't follow after God. And God, one generation later, began to take the kingdom away. Right? You already have the kingdom splitting and then soon after exiles. But 1 Kings chapter 9, look at verse 10. It came about at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the, house, and the king's house. Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold according to all his desire. Then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Okay, stop right there. What kind of guy has 20 cities? <laughs> this guy has 20 cities that he apparently can just dispose of. Okay, so again, we're just looking at the wealth and majesty and grandeur of the kingdom of Solomon. But look at verse 12. So Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they did not please him. He said, what are these cities which you have given me, my brother? So they were called the land of Kabul to this day. Which, by the way, the little footnote in your margin, if you've got a margin, you can read Kabul. What does it mean? As good as nothing. <laughs> 
These cities are as good as nothing. Thanks a lot, Solomon. So Solomon basically gave him the 20 worst cities in exchange for some gold. Well, how much gold? Look at verse 14. And Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold. So 20 cities for 120 talents of gold. Okay, well, what's 120 talents of gold? Well, it was equivalent to, get this, four tons of gold. Okay, well, how much is four tons of gold? Well, four tons of gold would be worth today. If you had four tons of gold and you walked into a gold shop and are going to do your exchange, any idea how much money that would get you? Between 150 and 200 million dollars. 150 and 200 million dollars is what Solomon obtained in this one business transaction. Okay? You're in 1 Kings 9, look at verse 26. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships in Azion Geber, which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors who knew the sea, along with the servants of Solomon. Verse 28, they went to Ophir and took 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to Solomon. Okay, did you catch that? 420. So in verse 14, we have 120. Now we have 420. Well, that's 16 tons of gold worth how much money? Between 600 and 800 million dollars, depending on the currency rate today. Between 600 mil and 800 mil. That's how much he obtained in this one transaction, a different transaction. And again, this is just one scenario. And friends, I just, I want to floor you, okay? I really want to impress you with Solomon's wealth. Flip over three books to your right to 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Did you notice in 1 Kings 9, he said he gave him gold according to all his desire? I think that's a hint here. The reason these details are recorded and why this is uh, recorded in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is because Solomon had a lust for money. He had a lust after gold. And now in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, in verse 13, it says, Now the weight of gold which came to Solomon in one year, okay, so Solomon's annual salary just in gold, not silver, not other things, was 666 talents of gold, besides that which the traders and merchants brought. Okay, this is just getting ridiculous, right? 666 talents of gold? How many tons of gold? Well, that was 25 tons of gold. And how much would that be as an annual salary? $1 billion. That's not an exaggeration. I calculated it with a calculator. $1 billion, okay? Solomon's annual salary every year was a billion dollars. This man had more money than we can even fathom. Second Chronicles 9 continues to chronicle the list of possessions and stuff that he had. It says he had 200 large gold shields. Each shield required 600 shekels of gold, which was $75,000 today per shield. So he spent $15 million on some gold shields. It goes on to say that he made decorative shields, and these shields were just to hang in places, okay? Just to hang inside. Well, how much did he drop on that? Well, 11 million, just for decoration shields. He had a throne of ivory, and what's the ivory made out of? Elephant tusk. A, a, a throne of ivory plated in gold, the footstool for his throne was also made out of gold. His drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels in his house were gold. So plates, silverware, etc. 
And then verse 21 says that the ships from Tarshish brought him gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So Solomon is gathering all these possessions, including apes and peacocks, tons of gold. And friends, I think we could just go on and on and on. We have chapter after chapter recording how wealthy this man was. I think we could have really done a whole message on searching for satisfaction in money. But this is just one point. Solomon went after money and he had a lot of it. He had warehouses full of money. So I think this speaks to all those, perhaps all of us, who are obsessed with finances, who are obsessed with money. We need to keep building our savings account. You've got to get a 401k and start building it. You've got to save for retirement. Oh, I've got to have at least this much in my bank. Oh, I've got to have this much. And here's, listen, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to be wise stewards. But what's wrong is when this dominates your thinking. When someone will say, I don't care what happens in my spiritual life or my family, I'm not even going to check out if there's a church there, but if this job pays me the most, that's where I'm going. Friends, let there be a lesson for you in this. You're going to be job hunting here in the next four or five years probably. And I just want to encourage you, do not let money own your affections. Learn from Solomon. Money does not satisfy Okay, we're on this end of it. And I say we because I am very much on that end too. We don't have a lot of money. We're not rich and wealthy. Solomon's on the other end. And in Ecclesiastes, he looks back and he writes, it doesn't satisfy. It's fleeting. It's vanity. It doesn't last. Lastly, returning to Second Corinthians, or, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he searches after treasures now, or he goes after treasures. Verse 8, also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. What sort of things did this involve? Well, it would be things like precious stones, right? You've seen people who collect stones. They're cool, but they don't satisfy. These would be things like fancy wood or wood carvings. Again, I know people who have lots of cool wood carvings or wood decorations or fine-tuned little carved-out gadgets, right? They're cool, but can they be your life? They don't satisfy. Maybe it includes, it includes a carved-out statue, right? I know people who go to Rome and just they're, they drool over the statue of King David over there. Okay, yeah, it's cool, but is it going to satisfy? No. Maybe it includes, included things like fancy spices and good-smelling things. We know that kings brought King Solomon these. Maybe it includes things like peacocks and apes. That was in the list, right? Whatever it is, he's, he's looking for the treasures of kings, okay? And the kings are bringing them to him. And in essence, what this describes then is all the stuff, all the things that Solomon sought after for satisfaction. Well, does this apply to us today? Oh, man. <laughs> Friends, what's sad is that this is really what the American dream is built on. How much stuff can you get? Add more stuff to your life, then you'll be happy. Then you will have arrived. Right? Get a nice house, get a nice car, flat screen, a flat screen TV, maybe a boat, then you'll be happy. No, 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 no. You see, you need a nicer boat. You need a bigger truck. You've got to have the newest gadget and a four-wheeler. Then you'll be happy. Actually, uh, no, what it really comes down to is it's just sad. You have an iPhone 7, and there's a newer one out. If you get the newest iPhone, then you'll really be happy, right? Now, do those sound ridiculous? Kind of. But if we're honest, and we think about what goes on in our minds and in our hearts, I think we have the same thoughts and desires in us. We buy into the lie that stuff will make us happy. Friends, Solomon already did the experiment. 
He went down this road, and you know what he found out? It doesn't. It doesn't make you happy. You can buy new skis. You can buy a new bike. You can buy a new motorcycle. It's not going to do it. So I want to ask, do you believe this? I mean, is this part of who you are? We can say we believe this, but seriously, in our heart of hearts, do we believe that stuff in our lives is not going to make us happy? And the reason I want to push on this is because of our culture. How many advertisements are we bombarded with day after day after day? Turn on the TV. For every 10 minutes of show, you've got five minutes of commercials, advertising products. Go on Facebook. Oh my goodness, Facebook is like the idol champion here, right? You can't be on Facebook for five minutes without seeing something that probably at least tempts you to lust after it. Oh man, that looks so awesome. I want that. Okay? Right? The world we live in is not helping us when it comes to lusting after stuff. And I want to say this. I don't think it's a matter of if, but probably a matter of what. What stuff is competing for your affections for God? What stuff in your life? Maybe it's clothing. Maybe it's name brand clothing. Maybe it's a car. Okay? What stuff in your life is competing? I'm not trying to say you're an unbeliever, but even as believers, what stuff's competing for the affections of your heart? Remember C.S. Lewis, what he said? We're far too easily pleased. I can vividly remember as a kid, oh man, Christmas time. Just every kid's dream, right? I mean, Thanksgiving rolls over and I'm like ready. I'm excited. I'm making the chains, counting down the days. Why am I so excited for Christmas? Well, to my shame, not because of baby Jesus, okay? Not because of the Christmas carols, not because of the food. What did I really want and what did you probably want? Presents! I wanted to open the presents, right? And so there's so much anticipation starting when you're like five years old all the way till you're 25 years old. Wait. Yeah, 25. Yeah, it's still that way sometimes, right? And Christmas gets here. And what happens? You have this big parade of opening presents, and you just start trying to get through it, and you get one, and it was something you wanted, but you're, okay, I'm ready for the next one. And by the end of it, here's what I began to observe year after year. I would sit there with my heap of goods, right, my little stash over here that I'm protecting from my siblings, and a, a sense of emptiness would set in. It's like, man, it's over. I've acquired the stuff, and yeah, this is cool, but none of it is really going to satisfy me. And sure enough, within a month or two or maybe three if it was super cool, uh, it's already worn off, right? You, have you been there? Have you been there with Christmas time? So true. A toy doesn't last. <laughs> a toy does not last. I don't care if we're talking about kids or adults. That thing is not going to sustain your contentment for the rest of your life. You can get the latest video game console. You can get the latest set of skis. You can get the latest mountain bike. You can get the latest electronic device, cell phone, purse, shoes, hairdo, you name it. Things that you add to your life are not going to satisfy you. Your heart is just going to want more and more and more. So friends, let me ask. Do you remember the, the title of this series? It's called Walking with Wisdom, How to Live Life Without Regrets, right? How to live a life without regret. Do you want to walk with wisdom? Do you want to be able to look back on your life and say, wow, Lord, thank you. Thank you that I live faithfully for you. If we want to do that, then we need to hear Solomon's advice here. We need to take seriously this pursuit in particular, these four areas that he went after, right? And I think we need to apply it. We need to learn the lesson if we want to live a life without regrets. 
Now, I want to talk about a general principle that comes out of this, and I want, I want to pull in another passage for it. So turn to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians again, and this time chapter 6. I want to hone in on how we began to think through this. I think we saw Solomon's example. He goes after having servants, or I think having people under his authority is really the idea there. He goes after livestock or possessions. Hey, maybe for you this is a dog or a cat, right? I don't know. Maybe your idol is more so along the lines of money. He went after money. And then he went after treasures, little trinkets, whatever you want to call them. But I think for us, there's a general principle that can help us think through all of these matters. All things that we have in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writing, look at verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, what's going on here? Well, I'm going to explain the context in a moment. But first, this phrase, all things are lawful for me, this was probably an expression that was going around at the time in this church of Corinth. Was, was Corinth a nice, squeaky clean, exemplary church? No, far from it, right? They had messes all over the place. Another place is here. And so uh, he's straightening out this church, but to do so, he's using a phrase that they often use, which is that all things are lawful for me. And here's what they would, what they would do with this phrase. They would justify their sinful behavior. They'd say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm not under the law. Don't try to put me under the law because that's legalism. Okay, and uh, we're not under the law. We're under the spirit. It's grace, all, all grace here. All things are lawful for me. And then they would go on to say, and by the way, everything is just physical, or, you know, or, or sorry, this is just physical. What really matters is spiritual. There's a separation. So it doesn't matter if I do physical things with my body that are sinful because, hey, my spirit is pure. Okay, baloney. Uh, but anyways, that's what they were saying, right? And so Paul's going to set them straight. And I think verse 12 is a general statement. And just to get a little bit of the context, look at verse 13. He says now, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. So what emerges is that what they were using this for is actually to justify their sexual immorality, even adultery. The Corinthians were saying, hey, all things are lawful, it's good. Hey, and then they would say this, look at verse 13, here's another phrase. Food's for the stomach, the stomach's for food. Okay, this was a, a, a saying they would say. The idea is, is the body was made for sex. That's what they were saying. And so Paul is setting them straight, and he, if you read the following verses here, he specifically hones in on the issue of immorality. No, you cannot say my body's separate from my soul, you're together as one, plus Christ is going to raise your body, so you're going to have a new body in heaven, therefore you can't defile your body, plus Christ's spirit lives in you. And then verse 20, look at that, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And so again, Paul's setting them straight. But the reason I went here is because he begins this section with a general rule and principle that I think we need as we think through stuff. Again in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Friends, this is just entirely presumptuous, isn't it? I mean, this is like the epitome of arrogance. It, it, basically what they're doing is saying, hey, it's okay if I sin and ask for more grace. Okay? I can sin and allow grace to abound. And Paul then comments on that and he says, but not all things are profitable. So where they were wrong in their thinking is that, hey, grace covers me. But Paul says, yeah, but does everything profit your Christian life? Does everything uh, go toward your edification? 
Is it of value? Of course, Paul is pressing on the notion that a person can be a believer and continually sin, because I don't think that's the case. And so he's, he's really questioning them, is are you even thinking about what's profitable for the Christian life? He's essentially saying just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. So he says, not all things are profitable. And then he repeats the phrase. Look at verse 12. He says again, all things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. Here's the idea, friends. If you begin to engage in sin willfully, and if you allow something to be a part of your life, that you know is wrong, but you say, hey, I'm forgiven by grace, what eventually is going to happen, it begins with, is this profitable? But if you continue in it, what happens? It gains mastery over you. It soon owns you. And to see this principle again, Paul says it so clearly in Romans 6.1. This verse led me to the Lord, really. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, can I just keep on sinning and then just keep on going and asking for forgiveness, presumptuously so? What does he say? May genoita, which in the Greek is the strongest form of a negative, may it never be. Look at his argument though. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, in other words, who have been placed into Christ, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to save us away from things that would entrap us, away from things that ensnare us, and unto a life of walking in newness of life. And then I love this, Romans chapter 6, this time verse 12. He says, therefore, and here's the command, in light of this indicative, this truth, if you're a believer, you're in Christ, you've, you've uh, died with him, then you're raised with him. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. Sin shall not be master over you. If you live with Christ, then you have died to sin, friends. And therefore, there's a serious warning for us as we think about idols in our lives, right? Idols that can steal away our affections. If you're in Christ, then you should not want to sin. You should be thinking along the lines of what Paul's reasoning here. Is this profitable for me? Am I enslaved to this? Paul says, I am not mastered by anything. This is his example. Romans 6 was the doctrine 1 Corinthians 6 is the example of not being enslaved to anything. And so, I think the takeaway for us is, are we enslaved to a possession? Do we spend time thinking about, overly thinking about, stuff in our lives? Do you lust after? Does it, it take up your mind space and your money and your affections, that new toy that you want, whether it's small or big, that new possession, that new article of clothing, that new thing? If so, I think we need to learn this principle that anything that has mastery over you is sin. Paul is setting the example of not being mastered by anything. He's commending that now to the Corinthians. Anything that has mastery over us is sin. Here's some examples. If food has mastery over you, then you're in sin. 
If a video game has mastery over your life, you're in sin. If shopping for new items of clothing or articles or whatever it may be has mastery over you, then you're in sin. If hunting has mastery over you, you're in sin. If skiing has mastery over you, you're in sin. If anything that's considered stuff has mastery over you, then you're in sin, including money. Including money. You might give yourself the benefit of the doubt and say, well, I I could go without this thing. I don't think it's an idol. Well, before you give yourself the benefit of the doubt, maybe you should test that. Maybe you should do a test and say, can I really go without that thing? Can I really go without a cheeseburger every Monday? Right, whatever it might be in your life. Can I really go without this thing in my life? I uh, wanted to test myself in this way, just not being mastered by anything. So this summer, um, well, actually last spring, I started drinking coffee for really the first time in my life and soon was drinking it pretty regularly. And when I say coffee, okay, I mean lattes, right? Uh, Specifically white chocolate lattes. Okay, it's out. (laughs) So white chocolate lattes, here we go. And, uh, and I wanted just to test, okay, Matt, am I addicted to this thing? Now, I've already got this kind of wiry personality, so coffee doesn't do a whole lot for me, but I like the taste, and it does kind of wake you up a little bit. So I gave it up. I gave it up for a month, and I wanted to make sure that coffee did not have mastery in my life. In the same way, friends, I would challenge you to examine yourself. Are you mastered by anything except for, you, you can have three things that can master you. Are you ready? God the Father, God the Son, or the Holy Spirit, or the Word of God which comes from them, right? Those things can have mastery over you and should have mastery over you. You remember Ephesians 5 last week? Do not be drunk with wine. What's the idea? Being controlled by that influence, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, what's master? What or who is master in your life? The Holy Spirit or substance? Same question applies here now. What, if anything, might be competing for affections in my heart and taking away my full devotion to God. Idols, friends. Calvin said our heart is a factory of idols. Our heart is a factory of idols. Does anything I own then control my thinking and actions throughout the day? As I'm going through work or you're going through school, am I thinking about getting home for a thing, for something that would be called stuff? Do I turn to something for happiness, joy, satisfaction, or comfort? Have I allowed something to shape my identity? Do I take pride in my possessions? Do I lust after more possessions? Do I view my possessions as a means to my own pleasure? All questions to reflect on. So what I want to do, just to close out here, I want to give you a a step-by-step process. Just three quick steps. I'm not going to talk long about them. How do you go about killing an idol in your life? And this is general. This applies to any idol. It can apply here to stuff as well. We've seen in Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon ran this experiment. It didn't work, okay? That should be enough for us. Secondly, we see this principle in 1 Corinthians 6. I'm not to be mastered by anything. But now what I want to do is just give you a biblical approach to how to kill an idol, okay? So here we go. Step number one, turn from dead stuff to a living God. Turn from dead stuff to a living God. Essentially, repent. Okay? Repent means to turn, to rethink. Paul wrote a letter, and he wrote this letter to a beloved church. Man, this was a sweet church, powerful testimony. This was not a church like Corinth. This church was called Thessalonica. And the letter is 1 Thessalonians. And in recounting their salvation to them, listen to how he explained it. Listen to how he explained their salvation. He said that they turned to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Man, is that just exciting? Or what? I love that verse. The Thessalonians had come to faith in God. They knew Jesus Christ as their savior. He was their hope. And the way they had done that is they had turned from idols. They had turned from idols. Friends, is this a one-time thing or continual? Well, it's, it's kind of both, right? This is what salvation is. This is the life of the believer. And so I think in the same manner then, if you've got idols in your life, whether it's related to drinking or work or possessions or money or stuff, I urge you to turn from them to the living God. He gives life abundantly. It's robbing you of your joy and it's robbing God of his glory. So number one, turn from dead stuff to the living God. Number two, deal radically with sin. Okay, once you've identified the idol, you've begun to turn. Well, listen, you've got to take this seriously. You've got to put the hammer down on this puppy, all right? This temptation's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. Just because you identify it and you start to turn from it, does that mean the battle is over? No. And I mentioned this, but you might leave here tonight, not even make it out into your truck, out of the parking lot, and boom, you're already going to be tempted again. Why? Because you've got a phone. You've got access to internet and news and Facebook on your phone that can tempt you. And so, here's the principle. Deal radically with your sin. In Matthew chapter 5, the greatest preacher of all time preached the greatest sermon of all time. And yes, I am talking about Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 to 29, he said, if your eye causes you to stumble, do what? Pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Right? What's the principle here? No, he's not talking about annihilating yourself or hurting asceticism of some sort. He's talking about dealing radically with sin. There should be nothing in your life that is so important that gets in the way of you dealing with sin. In other words, your priority of killing sin in your life needs to go from here to here. It should be utmost. Nothing should get in the way in your life, even if you've got to ruin relationships, quit your job. I don't care what it is. Jesus is teaching your most valuable thing, your right eye, your right hand, should be considered dispensable for the sake of, sinning, of killing sin. So secondly, deal radically with sin. Thirdly, store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. If you've done these two things, you've identified the idol, you've turned from it, you're dealing radically with it, you're killing this thing day after day, you're beginning to turn to God, that's only half the battle. Okay? We haven't even talked about what this looks like now. You need to cultivate godly affections. And so I think this looks like this. Don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. In other words, store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Again, Jesus speaking, same sermon. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What a fitting passage, right? We're talking about stuff. We're talking about possessions. Jesus says, listen, these things are going to rust. They're going to get broken. They're going to destroy themselves with time. They're going to decay. But things in heaven, those last forever. Jesus, friends, is calling us to set our eyes on eternity, not on the present. On heaven, not on the earth. And on spiritual things, not on mere physical stuff. And I think the quote that summarizes it for me in closing is this. There's only two things that are going to last forever and they're going to live on from this earth. God's word and people's souls. Therefore, if you want to make an impact that can last forever, give yourself to implementing God's word into people's souls. 
Friends, we need to turn from materialism, turn from stuff, and wake up because there's a spiritual battle going on. Agreed? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a convicting, challenging evening. As Lord, we've surveyed a few different passages, but Lord, we're primarily looking at Solomon. And in a sense, Lord, we pity him because you gave him all the wisdom, all the wealth in the world, and yet he used it for ungodly purposes. He ran this experiment to its utter end. And Lord, there was nothing there. It was empty. It didn't fill the well. It didn't fill his need for pleasure. Lord, we know that only you do that. God, Psalm 1611 should ring true in our hearts that in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, may our yes be stronger than our no. May we be drawn to you more than we even want to stop doing other things, Lord, because you are so beautiful, so attractive. Life in you is full of abundant joy, eternal life, Lord. And so, God, we pray that if any of us have an idol of stuff, of just things, items, possessions, Lord, whatever it may be, that you would convict us and that you would change us, God, that we would set our hearts to turn from them, to walk faithfully with you, the living and true God, Mm. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.